Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Grace Church of Ocala Sermon Podcast. We are equipping disciples who make disciples in Ocala, Florida. What follows is an audio recording from our Sunday morning worship gathering, and we hope that you will find it encouraging, challenging, and helpful. At Grace Church, we like to learn a new song with every sermon series. For our current series, Sojourn, we're singing Not Our Home by Jonathan and Emily Martin. If you'd like to hear the song and learn it with us, then stay tuned after the sermon. If you have any questions or would like more information about Grace Church of Ocala, please visit our home on the web, ocalagrace.org. Our lives are going to reflect how we follow in and our victorious shepherd's footsteps. Because our lives will reflect that. One way or another, our lives do reflect what we believe. And do they reflect that our shepherd is victorious? Okay, so open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, and that is on page 856. Page 856, if you need one of our uh, good news Bibles. And we'll start in chapter 3, verse 1. And we're going to see here that everybody's going to follow the shepherd. And we're going to start 1 Peter chapter 3 with a little caveat. I want you to move your fingers up to chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every institution. Everybody. Move your finger down to verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters. Why? Look at verse 21. For... To this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an an example, so that you might follow in his steps. So we've talked about everybody. Follow the government. Follow the community in which you're in. Be, they're there for a reason. We know that from Romans 13. Then we go down to verse 18. Hey, if you go to work for a living, you make a living and you go to work, hey, be submissive to your employers. Okay, so then we're going to get down to verse 21. Why do you do this? Because Jesus suffered and set an example for you to follow in his footsteps. Okay, guess what we're going to get to in chapter 3, verse 1? Wives. What is the first line of chapter 3, verse 1? Likewise. Why does it say likewise there? Because we've talked about two other people that have had to learn how to interact in their communities and what God has said, here's how you do this. So it makes sense that Peter's going to go from way out here to everybody. Everybody that works, and now, boom, I'm going to go right in your home. So as we go into the doorstep of our house, pick up in verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word. By the conduct of their wives, when they see you respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah bade Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So we're moving right into the home. Wives, what does it look like? Ladies, what does it look like if you're married this morning to follow the shepherd? What's it 
if you're married to a guy who doesn't obey the word? What does Peter say? Does that give me a kind of, does that mean that you don't get to follow God? Does that mean you get an out? Does that mean there's an asterisk behind your life that says, but my husband is not a very good guy. So I don't have to follow this Jesus character. Now what does Peter say? Follow. Submit to him as unto Jesus. And we're going to figure out here at the end that Jesus is, has everything under his subjection. So you're going to submit. And here's the caveat of what I'm going to say. We've said this before. This doesn't mean an abusive relationship. There's reasons for not being in those. And I'm not saying in every situation. This is where it gets hard. Okay, but how does she then win her husband without saying a word? You've ever walked into a room and there's a lady there that's really corked? Never says a word. And everybody knows it. Come on, nod your heads. Rick. No, I should have gotten an amen from every guy in If mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. Okay, so the inverse of that is true. And Peter knows this. We're going to go into the home. We're not going to go into the home. I'm going to go into the ladies. I'm going to go to something. I don't ever even pretend to understand. No one is every guy who has ever been married. What is like in your heart? God knows. And he says, adorn that. Take care of that part. And that part that oozes out as you live, as your character comes out in all these situations, he's going to see it. Live in such a way that your characteristic, your, your lifestyle, what it means for you following Jesus is evident to him without even saying a word. Is it possible? Yeah. Is it hard? Absolutely. This following, and look, when I move the steps over here for the kids, I purposely spread some of them apart. Does Jesus say, hey, follow me, and it's all going to be easy from here on out? Now, the context of 1 Peter is, hey, you guys have been spread all over because you have been persecuted. Life is really, really tough. Some of you have been killed. But wives, there's some situation in which they live is very, very tough. What speaks volumes? Knowing God's Word and living God's Word in such a way that He can't help but see it. Adorn the inside. What does it mean to adorn? Let's see. Um, Camille, how long does it take to do your hair before the pageant? It took like 45 minutes, maybe. Did you say three hours? <laughs> no. Okay. Those ladies who've gotten ready for a wedding or been to a wedding for a lady who was getting ready to get her hair all done. Because here's a picture. I found a picture of a lady getting into a car. How long does it take to go to the gig? What time do guys show up for a wedding? An hour before, and then you get in there two hours before because they get restless and they do stupid stuff with the groomsmen, right? Now, ladies, what time do they show up for? What time do you get up on wedding day? Two o'clock in the morning? Nope. Right? And what do they do forever? They do up hair. I love Peter's illustration. Hey, don't adorn the outside. You know, we're good at that. I mean, I'm not because you can see me. I mean, I don't adorn real well. Uh, there's other people that are better at corn, you know, Andrew's got really good hair, Pastor Michael's got really good hair, you know, Ryan's got good hair. I don't adore well. I mean, this is all because of death. But ladies, when you take all that time, and you're adorning, you're taking care of it, you're brushing, you're taking care of it. What are the extent in our, and I would like to know the economic ramifications of beauty salons for those ladies who are about ready to get married. They don't want that kind of stuff. So Peter's like, hey, put all that energy and adorn the inside. And this inside, what does it look 
sudden, no God will really understand until he's lived with you for like 400 years. God says that's eternal and imperishable. When God says something is eternal and imperishable, it's a great big deal. That part. Okay, now I'm turning gray, and I have somewhat of an extent of it that most people can see readily. But quite frankly, when I do praying ramble counseling to a young couple, and he's marrying a beautiful bride, I have to sit him on his staff and say, she may not always look beautiful. There might be a car wreck. There might be a third road problem. Don't marry her for her beauty that's on the outside. I think women are beautiful. I kind of like mine. But we age, don't we? And we know as that goes on. But God says, ladies, that's what's in the deep down inside is imperishable and beautiful and adorn that. Take care of it. And how do you do this? Loud, clean, simple, that every time your husband comes home, you're... Because he says, gentle and quiet spirit. The idea isn't that you keep your mouth shut and keep the kitchen clean. That is not it. It's being able to live in such a way with the gifts that God has given you that your husband sees that and says, Whatever you are being gifted in, ladies, do that incredibly well in the service in your community because Jesus wants you to follow you where? Just at home? In your community? At your job? Because I look out and look at ladies with all kinds of different gifting. I'm saying do your job. Do your community service. Do it so stinking well that everybody around you sees it. And then when you get home, it's still on display. And if your husband isn't obeying the word of the Lord, you can say, look at me. And just keep going. Because man, you speak bald. We're the only one that can speak with a megaphone and never open the mouth. And God knows that. I don't know how to preach it because I, I've just seen an experience. And I'm like, you guys know what I'm talking about, men. And you ladies know. But I don't know how to explain it really well so you're like, okay, so I'll, I'll just move on to the next point. But know that that is what God says that's incredibly important. Endure that and live it in front of Him. And He can't be won by your contact. Conduct. It's very precious. God considers that very precious. Guys, side note, put that one in your pocket. If God considers something incredibly valuable, eternal significance, he says that's very precious. What do you think he's gonna say? Guys, love the snot out of her. Cherish that. Take care of that. So we've seen everybody submits some way or another. We got civil work, we've got wives, we've gone into the household. And we've seen ladies adorn that which is eternal, the interior deep parts of the heart with based upon God's word and following Jesus. Now I'm going to get to the husbands. Look at verse 7. Likewise, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so your prayers are not hindered. Guys, live with her. Not just go to work and come home and expect something to Live with her. Let her see you circumspect. Let her see all the different angles of what it means to be a man and leading her. If she is going to be following somebody to you, you want her to be able to see all aspects to be able to say, yeah, I'll chase after that guy as I chase after Jesus. Live with her in an understanding. 
just says to the ladies, okay? Then why would he say, guys, live with your wives? Duh. Does that make you think? Why would Peter put that in there? Actually be at home when you're at home. Actually let her know you who you are. Let her see everything about you. Because where is God working on you? Live with them in an understanding way. When? Work hard. Strive after what is God considers to be a cherished, beautiful thing. If God considers that precious, guys, get in the mindset that that internal part is what I'm chasing after. That's what I want to deal with. That's what I want to nurture. When it says weaker vessels, hey, we got some ladies in here that served in the armed forces, and I would not want to fight them. Sarah's not in the room, but I wouldn't pick a fight with Sarah. Why in the world's a weaker vessel? Think of it this way. When you go to the jeweler, and you have this cool little one that you got this, like, Beautiful diamond and all this, all this stuff that's set in it. You can tell I don't know much because I don't go to those places. But you know, you got this ring and it's got the diamond in the middle and you got all this. What is it set in? What do they bring it to you? Paper bag? What's it look like? A box. A box, okay. What kind of box is it? Huh? It's lined. Is it lined with tissue paper? Velvet. Guys. item and it's precious. So Peter's giving you this idea that which is not weaker in the sense that she can't do her thing. This is a vessel which is being held something incredibly precious. You wouldn't take that box and just wing it and put a bunch of nuts and bolts on it. But it's meant to hold something incredibly precious what God considers eternal significance and a beauty. Get the idea? Treat that box. Treat that lady. Treat what she is because in her inner heart is what God considers of eternal value. And by the way, it's not just that, but she's also your sister. Why would your wife be your sister? Because she's a fellow heir. Heir what? Jesus gave you the ability to have a relationship with them and he talked about it in 1 Peter chapter 1. You can be an heir of all that your father is hoping for you in heaven because he's adopted you into the family. She is a fellow heir. She's also a sister of Jesus. She's also someone that you are going to do life with as you serve Jesus together. And by the way, the two are two or the two become one. If she's a fellow heir, that means Jesus died for her. He put value on that. He died for her. He calls her mine. He calls her my child. What if you don't, guys? What if you don't treat her like the value prize that Jesus finds in her? Jesus says, don't you talk to me. What? Guys, how many times have you been praying for God to do something and you're trying to figure out what's going on and you feel like the walls are just up? Maybe you're not treating your wife well enough. Because God says, if you don't treat my lady correctly, I'm not going to hear your babbling mouth. It's right here in the text. You don't treat her right, Jesus doesn't listen to you. You mean to tell me that my prayer life to the Heavenly Father is directly connected to the way I treat my wife? Absolutely. It's not all about you. The God of the universe will listen to you dependent upon the way you treat his wife because 
your wife because look at this. She is the she is looking forward to the day when she's handed to her eternal groom. Think of it that way. You will hand her off, and, and she knows Jesus as her personal Lord and Savior. Eternity is spent with her personal groom, her hero, her salvation winner. And if you don't treat her right, what is the Heavenly Father who died for her? Her hero, her salvation giver thinking. That's mine. Guys, how many times do you get fired up and somebody didn't treat your wife right just a little bit? Fine, raise your hand. I know you're a feisty fellow. The Lord of the universe. And this is why we've read these verses this morning. Because Jesus is our crucified Savior. But He's our risen Lord. He's at the right hand of the God. Right hand of God. And everything is underneath Him. When we talk about submission to things, what is Jesus submitting to? When He was here, it was to the Father's will. Go, die, and I'll raise you from the dead. Once you're raised from the dead, now you're the King of kings, Lord of lords. When He comes back and He wins, everything is underneath Him, even the demons. Satan himself. He is the boss of boss. So we've seen in the workplace, we've seen where we live, we've seen in our homes, and wives, and husbands, and guess what? Peter's going to go back to everybody. Pick up with me in verse 8. Finally, all of you. Kind of pick up. <laughs> He's like, hey, okay, I picked on just about everybody I can think of, but alright, every one of you. Every one of you. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for those for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So everybody, be harmoniously united. Okay, good illustration. Pastor Michael can sing. You guys have heard that. Before you all get here, Pastor Michael practices. And then Pastor Ryan and I try to sing along. It is not harmony. But the picture is be harmoniously united. Sing in the same voice. Sing the same tune. Share with each other's joys and sorrows. Is it a big deal to God that you do that? Absolutely. Because every person in God's family is part of His flock. And He has the same love for each one of the flock as He does the wife's cherished heart. It's all of that. Be harmoniously unified. Share with each other and their joys and their sorrows. There are some days and some mornings where it's hard to have joy and sometimes it's where you share in the sorrow. Can you do that with a stranger? Something, you know, maybe. But what God's talking about is a flock, as a family, you know each other well enough to know that. Look in their eye and they're And he pulled aside, can I pray for you? Can I share in your joy? Somebody comes in incredibly happy and you've had a really rough week. Somebody accepted Jesus this week and you want to share that. And you're like, man, no, my, it's all about me and I've had a rough week. You know, my, you know, I, I, my dog went left 
Is that right? What, it's where you're thinking in front of somebody else's. Their, their business is more important than yours. You're going to share in their joys, share in their sorrows. You're going to work with them as part of God's flock, God's family, because we're all heirs. Everybody. And then he's going to give us in his line and look at verses uh, 10 through 12. It's his poem. And I call it the good life recipe. Uh, watch your tongue. Keep it under control. Chase hard after peace. I know I skipped this second one. I wanted to land in for a second. You know, we teach kids this all the time. Watch your tongue. That was kind of mean. Then as we get older, we find new veiled ways of saying it. We call it sarcasm. But if you can control the tongue, you're an incredible person. And chase hard after peace. It's a big deal. Chase hard after it. But the second one, turn your back on evil and run toward good. Here's the thing. If I spend my entire life saying, I'm not doing evil, I'm not doing evil, and I'm not doing evil. This verse says, turn your back on evil and run toward the good. And by the context and the situation of what you're reading here is, hey, in your house, at work, in your family, with your husband, with your wife, everybody, everywhere. Turn your back on evil and run toward good. The righteous life is not the lack of sin, it's pursuit of righteousness. What I'm saying is, just don't spend your entire life saying, well, at least I don't smoke anymore. Or whatever it is. Now, what are you literally doing that is not evil? So it's, it's not the lack of sin, it's the pursuit of righteousness. It's turning your back on what is not what God wants you to do, but following Him in such a way that you're running after it. And as you're running after it, by the way, chase down people to make peace with them. What are the action words? Is the Christian life of following the shepherd in his footsteps passive or pretty aggressive? Is it, I'm just sitting here doing my thing, or is it active? It's pretty doggone active. This is like a P90X workout you should do. You can tell I don't do that anymore. But I mean, this is hard. They're going after it. You're doing the Iron Man. So everybody, keep going, you know, press on and follow your shepherd as you turn your back on evil and going towards righteousness. And you have the ingredients of the good one. Yeah, okay, so where do you do this? Where have we seen this so far? Chapter 2 and chapter 3. Chapter 2, 13 through 3, 12 so far. For in your community, as you live under the government that you're in, I love Jesus, but I like to speak. I love Jesus, but I want to rob banks. Doesn't work that way. In your example, in your daily work, wherever you work, he's talked about that. And he's also talked about in your house. He's covered just about every facet of life, has he? So, when somebody says, hey, are you a Christian? Do you go to church on Sunday? The correct answer is, yeah, I'm a Christian because I go to work. On Monday. And I do that with the people I work with. Are you a Christian you know, because you go to church on Sunday? No, because I'm married to a wonderful wife and I'm trying to treasure what Jesus treasures. See, the walk of following our Savior is all the time and everywhere. And it's pretty cool who we get to follow because he's not a whim. And we're going to get to that. And why would I ask you to follow 
It kind of says, do it. For to this reason you have been called. When Jesus called you to himself. Because he suffered for you, leaving you as an example. So that you might follow in his steps. I would say that 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 is the thesis of the entire book. Because it's set in the context of a people who are incredible trials and suffering. And Peter knows that. So pick up with me in verse 13. Because we've got hope. we got hope from verse 13. Now who is there to harm you for yourselves for what is good? And even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ to the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Stop there. Now, verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? If you're hot pursuit of following Jesus, you're zealous for what is good. And what would Peter, if you were to ask Peter, what is good? He'd say, chapter, welcome to chapter 2, verse 21. Following the shepherd who is our example. That is good. That is the definition of good in this context. But you're, 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 you're zealously devoted for it. You're hard at it. You want to become good where? Where do you want to be good at? We've covered this. Everywhere. In every situation. Especially at home where it's hard because your wife happens to see you every day. Except when you're in the kitchen. Even if you suffer for righteousness, you're blessed. What is the definition of a blessing? Uh, winning lottery ticket, uh, your car didn't have a flat. The definition of a blessing is that which brings you closer to God. And it's a hard definition because some of the things that bring us closer to God are hard things. So that's how Peter would say, hey, if you're being persecuted, it's a blessing. Because we tend to be just like our children. When everything are going well, they don't need anything. As soon as they get hungry, all of a sudden the cupboard's ready. And we got to hop into action. Jesus is our his children. And of course, when do we pray the most? Times are just tough. That's a blessing. You say, oh, good to hear from you, my child. Don't fear the fear. Don't fear those who are persecuting you. But honor Christ in your heart. Where else has he talked about the heart? Who did he talk to the heart about? Ladies? yours. And now he's saying honor Christ in your heart. Why would he say if something's happened to you on the outside, honor Christ in your heart? Because from the heart work the hands and the feet. What's really important to you, what you really value. Ladies, that which is incredibly the value of Jesus. When things get tough, when life gets tough, honor Jesus there. Because it will work out to your hands and feet in your situation and people will see that. Because you'll be the one that's acting in such a way that's so much different than the rest of the world. 
Because you're living as an example. Be ready to respond when somebody asks you why there's hope. Look at all these different situations he's given us. In the home, at the workplace, follow Jesus as an example. Then he says, we have a reason to respond to somebody when they ask you why there's hope. This isn't an apologetics verse. This is a, hey, I have an answer for why the people ask you the really hard questions in the Bible. Now this verse is set in the context, since you're living this way in your community, when something terrible happens around you, people look at you and say, you're the weirdo acting different. Why? Well, I have hope in here. Your husband is a dirtball. Well, yeah, we're all married to him because they're all sinners, but I kind of like mine. Why would you do that Why follow Jesus? You're dumb. Well, yeah. Because he's called me to. See how these work out? Husbands, you know, man, it's your anniversary when I'm going fishing with us, which would be all right for me. Not really, I just made that up. But you're making choices for your wife over what you would normally do, and the guys will say, what are you doing? I'm living with her. Really living with her. See how this... Okay, so this is said in the context. How can the reason for the whole continue is because you're living life in your community, in your home, in such a way when people ask you, what's going on, you have a reason to explain. Do you have those opportunities recently in your life where people have said, what's up with you? You have to ask yourself that. If nobody's asking you, why are you different, then are you different? I look a lot different. I get a lot of those questions. Why? Where did you get that period and how long you had it? Okay, I get that a lot. But really, as I'm interacting with people, this crazy stuff happens. And they say, why are you thinking different? So as you're at the workplace and something happens, how are people responding to you? Or do you have those opportunities to explain for the hope that's in you? What is the reason for the hope that is in you? I'm following Jesus. It's because you have a good conscience, verse 16, so that when you're slandered, when people speak badly about you, or you're reviled, when they, they just run all over you with their mouth, because your good behavior. It's not because you're a flaming idiot. If you get reviled and somebody calls you an idiot because you're an idiot at work, then you're an idiot at work. But when the boss says, hey, do this, and everybody else does it, and you're actually doing it, I'm like, hey, you're a moron. We're supposed to get overtime hours out of this. No, I'm doing what the boss has to do. Then they call you an idiot. They start reviling you. They start slandering you. I worked for the state of Ohio for 13 years at a professional slandering institute. Because you have good behavior in Christ. How do you put them to shame? For it is better to suffer for good. I like this. Look at the end of verse 16. Good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It's actually the word for humiliate. How do you, really, how do you humiliate somebody who's talking badly about you? Be a living example. Somebody says, that guy is a horrible worker. He couldn't have two nails in the wall. The boss comes and six months later and says, you're lying to me about it. A dude can drive some nails. I've watched his work. You guys have been slandering this guy and his life, his actions is totally different. You're a dork. <laughs> that literally word there is you humiliate them by your good behavior. Your actions speak louder than their words, and it takes a long time, and it hurts during the meantime, because our immediate defense when somebody slanders us is what? Uh-huh. And there's 43 reasons why I'm not deserving of that. We don't say, okay, watch me. Let's get into 
hard struggle. Put on your thinking cap, put on your work boots. Pick up with me in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. What is the context that we've been dealing with this so far? Living a life as a father of shepherd in the context of suffering. And for some reason, Peter is going to talk now about Jesus. Suffering again. Why did Jesus suffer? For your sins. For everything that you did by omission or commission that missed the mark of his righteousness. Some of it was thought, some of it was inaction. There is, we know with this phrase, nobody is perfect. But what we have a hard time with is, I am guilty of that which I will not perfect out. That's the other side of that coin. If you are not perfect, therefore you are perfect. Therefore you're guilty of that which you aren't perfect for. Because God is the ultimate judge. He says, hey, my criteria is perfection. By the way, I gave you a means of wiping that slate completely clean. But if you come to him and say, hey, I think I did pretty good on my own. Here's three pounds of flesh and suffering for what I did for you. He'll say, no, I already did that at the cross. Did you accept that or not? Will you submit your pride to say Jesus died for me? He died for our sins. He died for us. Why? Peter tells us to bring you to God. Primary principle that we all need to understand this morning. It sounds redundant to some of us. But I want to be crystal clear on this. The good news of Jesus Christ is death, burial, and resurrection and His promised return. Context of suffering, Jesus died for us, for our sins, for us to bring us to God. Okay, verse 19, in which, okay, at the end of 18, in the, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In which, in that state, in the state of the spirit, he went proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought through safely through the water. Raise your hands if you think that's complicated. Okay. Michael actually raised his hand. You did about halfway. So, we got some of them. At least this is hard. Okay, context is suffering. Main idea is Jesus died for you. This is, hey, Jesus is going to do something else while he died for you. The picture is bigger than just your sins. He suffered and did something amazing. And Peter is going to reveal to us what we would not know if it had been for him and Jude in the context of Genesis 6. That's why we read Jude, Jude this morning in Genesis 6, the flood. Okay, in prison. Why are the spirits in prison? Those things which are in spirit, those which is in prison are spirits. These are not people. How do I know that? Because in Genesis 6, 1 through 8. I'll flip it real quick. Mark. Okay. When the sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive, when those demons saw that the sons of 
So all the daughters were attractive. They took from their normal place where they should have been, and they took them as wives as they chose. Small verse in the middle of somewhere, a couple of verses that are white, but it's really tough. Why would the demons want to procreate with ladies during this time before the flood? Because God made a promise at the garden when He said, Hey Eve, this is what's going to happen. Serpent, this is what's going to happen. He said to the serpent, She, through her seed, through her children, there will be one who comes who, you will bruise his heel, but he's going to smash your head. Satan didn't forget that. If the children through her is going to annihilate me, and you're the evil one, you're going to do what with all our kids? Kill them! Christmas is coming up. Herod can't find his baby Jesus. What happens to all the babies? What happens there? They kill them! This is an ongoing thing. He said, I'm going to kill this baby. So, these demons try to taint that bloodline. Why is there only eight? When is it happening? It's right before the flood. Things have gotten really nasty. And Jesus sees this happen. And he says, you boys, you demons, that was out of line. You're going to jail. I'm going to put you in fire. I'm going to bind your high den up. And you're not going to be able to get out. And don't you move as if they have a choice. At the time of his crucifixion, he went through and said, I'm not dead. You tried to bring, you tried to taint the bloodline. I made it. I'm here. You're like, how in the world do you know that? Jude 6 gives us more information. The angels who did not say, this is what he's talking about, Genesis 6. Jude tells us some more insight. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. They were supposed to be doing what they were supposed to be doing. Whatever that was. I don't know the answer to that. But they moved out of what they were supposed to be doing. But the Bible says they left the proper dwelling. They were supposed to be wherever that was. They didn't do it. They disobeyed God. And the consequences is that Jesus kept them in eternal chains. Because they, he says you were just like Sodom and Gomorrah. What's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? People that did not do what they were supposed to do with whom we were supposed to do it. These evil spirits did something with somebody that they weren't supposed to do, and there's punishment for that. So he binds them. He puts them in there. And he, they serve as an example. Wow, this example thing keeps coming through. First Peter. Why? Okay, you're asking me, what is he doing? Why would he go from everybody suffers and you know you suffer as you follow to Jesus and your home and your family? Why would he go here? Okay, let me ask you one question real quick. I thought of this in light of Paris. What's the one time on the face of the earth that was the worst day ever up to this point? Huh? The flood. We teach this story to our kids. Here's God, what God did with the animals and with these eight people. Imagine being one of the eight people on that boat where everybody else in the world dies. And all the animals die. And they're saved. They make it through. But never think that Noah didn't... Well, okay, Noah raised the vineyard after he got off the ship and got drunk. That's in the Bible. Okay, you 
just built a ship forever that you never seen rain, and you listen to the whole world out, do you think you'd have drank? I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just giving you. The Bible's kind of doggone real. Peter's saying, look what Jesus did. He's done this for you. He is your suffering servant who died for your sins. And not only that, he died and went and said, I, boys, I conquered your hind end. And I've come back and said, what? Why, why didn't he do it? I don't know. Why did he wait until he came off the cross? I think it's because, hey, you tried to take my bloodline, and I made it. I'm victorious. I'm coming back to tell you, you're still locked up, and I'm going to win. And by the way, he talks about when they were doing it because it was during the flood, and the flood was a horrible time. And he said, you think your life is bad? Look what happened during the flood. So what's the big story? God is at the same time saving eight people and judging the rest. He saves us. And he will eventually judge the rest who don't accept him. This happens on so many different levels. At the same time he was saving us, he took some time to go tell some evil demons, I kicked your idea. So much of our life is beyond our perspective. We think the cross was he died, buried, and resurrected. Yeah, that's from our perspective. But there were some demons that knew when he stepped up on the earth and said, hey, don't you judge us yet. Don't you judge us yet, please. It's not our time, right, right, right? He said, okay. But there's a cast of crew that we don't know what looked like that when he was somewhere in that time frame went to them and said, I want. You're still locked up. And it's during the same time as the flood that when he, those, those people, those cast of characters were locked up, it was during the same time of the flood. And that's why Peter then says, verse 21, baptism which corresponds to this. This isn't baptism like what we do to, to publicly declare your acceptance of Jesus. What he's saying is these people went through the water. What's the this? It's the water. There's eight people who were saved through the water, literally in the ark, and it was however many people elsewhere that didn't. Baptism corresponds, what is the this? It is the water that flooded the earth that killed all the other people. It's the same water did what in the ark? It saved them. We serve that kind of Jesus. When he's piercing, follow your victorious shepherd. He's the same one that died for you and was so compassionate about what we are in our sin, but is also the same Jesus that could kick some demon hind in. It takes time somewhere in the resurrection process to go and tell them. I'd love to have heard it. Not there. I wouldn't want to have been wherever the fire was. But this is why he's doing Genesis 6 8 says they're in prison because they wanted to take the bloodline. There's more inspired. If you want to write these down, you might want to go back afterwards. June 67 is why we read that this morning. It gives us more inspired details of what is going on at the time of the flood. Baptism. God saved and judged through the flood and the water. And why do I not agree that he's saying that salvation saves us as in saves us in eternity? Because right in verse 21, what does he give as the reason for salvation? You have a good conscience to appeal to God as an appeal to God for a good conscience through what? What's the big deal? The resurrection. The resurrection is incredibly important because Jesus has been a good guy and just done some good things and he happened to have some good magician skills and he could heal some people and make food. Okay, he died. Another good movie gone wrong. But he runs from the dead. Victorious over sin. God the Father said that's a sufficient payment. 
And he also rose victorious over the demons. Because they'd always wanted to kill him. So let me bring it to you this way. Do you think when he went to the cross, who was having a party because he's going to die? The demonic anthem when he was being nailed to that cross had to be crazy. We killed him. Three days later when he came out of the grave, you can see him go, oh. And we just got news that he visited some of the boys and he said, you're condemned. See how this works together? And get this. As you move into the last verse, what has Jesus then done when he rose from the dead? He went to heaven as in the right hand of God. If you're somebody's right hand man, what are you? You're not the peon. God's right hand man. It's a picture of authority. Our crucified Savior, yes, he died. He rose again, but he just didn't rise. He rose victorious. And with what kind of authority? God's right hand. And not only that, pick up, keep going with me. Is it the right hand of God with angels and authority and powers having been what? Subjected to him. So in this context of suffering, in this context of what happened at the flood, he won. Everything is in subjecting to Him. Some were saved through water, some died through it. Some are going to be saved through the cross, because we understand that's where He started. He started this set of verses with why it is important that Jesus died. Remember, we went through these. Well, much for it. For your sins, for you to bring you to God. He did a lot of work, and it did a lot of work that we didn't even know about. It didn't even have anything to do with us. But he rose victorious when we see. Well, that's why we read Ephesians. Because he rose to the right hand of God. So we look at victory in this context. We got to follow Jesus in persecution. Because the entire context of 1 Peter is how do you live and follow Jesus when life's tough? And we're going to do it in all life. Because he's covered just about everything and everybody. Look, and the hope is in the eternal inheritance which God guards. We start out, we start out with that. Your hope is what he holds for you for all eternity. Okay? Because of the finished work of Jesus. That's primary to the book of 1 Peter. Those are the big ideas I want you to catch. Okay. Victory of our risen Lord is in that context. There's other corollary information. He kind of whooped up on the demons. He rose a victorious over him and Satan. So as we follow the risen Lord, even during catastrophic times, look at what Peter's doing. He's basically giving them an illustration. You think life's bad where you're at now? Let me tell you what happened during the flood. The worst day that's ever existed. During even catastrophic times, like no, there are those who are going to immediately follow. And there's those who won't. And see how God works on so many different levels that we don't even see. If it hadn't been for Jew, we just read Genesis 6 and say it was a flood, and get, you know, that's where the animals would get these little cute carvings for the secondhand stores. But there's so much that happened right there in those verses. And God is working at the same time of saving some and judging others. Because He's God. If you arrive to the right hand of God and everything is subjection to you, 
what gives you that right to judge over? And it really tickles this. I don't know what to think when people say, God has no reason, no right to judge me. Dude, he's God. Even if you don't ascribe to him deity, he still has that right. Does that make sense? Even if you don't respect somebody in authority, it doesn't remove them from authority. And that's when he's going to be saving some and judging others. So how do you follow the risen Lord? Because he's gone to heaven. He's at the right hand of God with everybody subject to him. That word subject is the same word we've been using for submission. Submission at work, submission to wives, submission to society. And Peter Capstone's it. Everything is in submission to Jesus. I want us to read together. Can you, see, can you guys see this? This is Ephesians 1, 22-23. He put, I'll read the light, you guys read red. Ready? He put, oh, come on now. Ready? He put, all things. under his feet and gave him head over all things. What is in that cover? All things. That's all things. Paul says Jesus is Lord of all things and everything is subject to him. As we follow our risen Savior, we follow in his victorious footsteps. Do you understand what I mean by victory now? The one who loved us enough to die for us and to redeem us and to know us and to bring us into relationship with him is also the victorious shepherd. Our shepherd isn't an underling working for somebody else. Now this is the conqueror of the world and of the underworld and of anything that's ever been created that we don't even know about. Yes, He's our crucified Savior, but He's our risen Lord. And it's a matter of following in His footsteps. Not in the sense that you're going to be a conqueror, but through Him we are more than conquerors. Because our Lord, our Savior has won. And it's hard right now when we sit and go into work this week and go wherever and see how life, how tough life is from our perspective. But to trust Him who has our best interests at heart and say, I'll follow you. Because I know in the end you win. And I know today you have my best interests at heart. Do you trust Him as your Lord and Savior? Now, do you follow Him? And where do you follow Him? Everywhere. Thanks again for listening. If you have any questions or would like more information about Grace Church of Ocala or the sermon you just heard, please visit our home on the web, ocalagrace.org. And now we're presenting Not Our Home by Jonathan and Emily Martin. We are foreigners. We are travelers to a country of our own. We are citizens of heaven, waiting for our King to come. We are making our exodus out of this world of sin and death.
reconciling God and men. And as we pass along, we will call to all, join our band of vagabonds. We are making our exodus out of this world of sin and death. We are making our exodus. 